Well, good morning, everyone. What a privilege to be able to be here again as a class. Have you ever heard the question, um, how old would you be if you didn't know how old you were? I like that question. And the older I get, the more I like it. I was talking to a friend of mine yesterday who was bemoaning the fact that he, a 35-year-old man, was stuck in a 71-year-old body. He says, it just takes me longer to get everything done. Well, here's another question, sort of similar, but it's a little more frightening. How old would others think you are if others didn't know how old you were? I had one of those moments not long ago. In fact, it was a first for me. Kathy and I went to the movies a couple of weeks ago, and uh, she went on in, and, so, and I walked up to the, the teller lady, you know, one of these Generation Z or ZZ, whichever one it was, but, you know, very young individual sitting there. It looked like they needed to be, have a babysitter. And she proceeded to give me a senior ticket. <laughs> Didn't even ask me. I looked at that thing and thought, uh, you little whippersnapper. <laughs> Didn't even ask me how old I was. So I thought, you know, well, should I be honest? Because officially I'm not. But should I feel insulted? Should I be grateful that I got the discount? So I decided to just be grateful and just to walk on in. <laughs> but I couldn't believe that. That was the first... First time that's ever happened. Probably won't be the last. So, you know, I consider that kind of precedent now. I'll just sort of walk up to the theater and say, yep, two seniors, please. Say, well, it happened last week. You sold me a ticket last week for a senior. Bob Hope said, you know you've reached middle age when your weightlifting consists of merely standing up. Ann Landers said, at 20 years old, we worry about what others think of us. At 70, we discover they haven't been thinking of us at all. (laughs) Well, it struck me a few years ago when I turned 50 that I've already missed my opportunity for a midlife crisis. (laughs) Unless I live to be 106, then I'll be in good shape. But the realization, though, that more of life lies behind us than is in front of us is what causes people sometimes to panic and to sort of realize that my life is slipping or has slipped away. And there, is, there becomes a crisis of identity, a crisis of purpose and of significance. And you can sort of understand that because God built us to have these passions. The, the problem is when those passions aren't God-directed, then that's when the midlife crisis really happens. Crisis really happens because... We try to find it in this life as opposed to finding the significance and purpose in Christ alone. It still happens, and it's sort of funny when it happens, and in, a, and in another way, it's sort of sad. Like when you're driving down the road and you see a, 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 an older guy driving a sporty convertible that blows back his toupee. <laughs> it's like, you know, that's not, I'm not impressed by that. Your car is nice, but... 
Or the lady at the gym that wears spandex to cover up the varicose veins and her stretch marks. Not as many laughs on that. Or the middle-aged executive who gets a tattoo, liposuction, and an Amazon subscription to Gray Away. Well, King Solomon tried all that, and he concluded that it was meaningless. His, his autobiography, his, his summary of life searching for the things of the world in the book of Ecclesiastes shows that life has a completely other purpose, and it's not chasing these things that, that the midlife crisis happens. Charles Kettering once said, we should all be concerned about the future because we'll have to spend the rest of our lives there. Well, most of us Christians look too far in the future, I'm convinced. And that is that we typically, our hope typically is that we think, you know, when we die, we're going to go to heaven and hello eternity. When the reality is, there's more that happens before eternity. There is more time to happen before there is no more time. And if you think about it in, in, in those terms, everybody in this room has plenty of time for a midlife crisis. Because add however old you are when you die, add a thousand years to that, and that's our time here on earth. We've still got another thousand years to go on this very planet. Now, thankfully, it won't be in these bodies but we still have another thousand years to go, and it's called the kingdom of God. Heaven is great, and I look forward to it as much as anybody. But heaven, as 1 Corinthians tells us, God, uh, the mind cannot imagine what God has prepared for those who love him. And there is something about heaven, and we'll look at that next week when we look at the eternal state. But, but there's not a, a lot about heaven in the scriptures. There's a ton about the kingdom. And it's wonderful because we can relate to the kingdom of God. We can relate to heaven on earth because we can imagine it. We can picture Christ ruling this earth. We can't picture heaven and, and the glories of it. And it's almost in, in a sense that scripture does us a favor by, by just saying, you know what, trust me, it's going to be awesome. Well, let's look together at a couple of different passages. We're going to look at several today. But the first are Hebrews 9 and Revelation 16. So open both of those places up with easy access, and we'll start there. Like we said last week, we're going through a series on prophecy. We're about halfway through it. We did the first, our first week together, we looked at the rapture, which is the next event in God's great prophetic plan for us as Christians. Last week, we looked at the tribulation period which thankfully is not part of our plan as Christians, but we got to see what's going to happen during that time and how the, the Lord is going to begin working one-on-one -on -one directly with Israel again. Well, today we're going to look at what happens when the world meets Jesus again, which is another way of saying the second coming, which ushers in the kingdom of God. When we read the Bible as a whole, the kingdom of God is not something that we often think about as a theme, but the reality is it is very arguably the theme of the Bible. A lot of times if you'll ask theologians, even pastors, what's the theme of the Bible, they'll say it's redemption. And, and that, 
that is, there's an argument to that, that there definitely is the theme of redemption all throughout the Scripture because the need for redemption happens early on, like three chapters in, and we have this need for redemption. But the reality is redemption is sort of the means to the goal of the kingdom of God on earth. The kingdom of God, arguably, is the theme of the Scriptures. And when we see the very beginning, the Bible as a whole, even before the fall of humanity, before the fall of Adam and Eve, you have Genesis 1 and 2 that sets up the stage. When God created Adam and Eve, he said, first of all, he blessed them, and then he said, let them rule. Let them rule over the birds, the fish, the animals, all the earth. So Adam and Eve were the king and queen, as it were, the rulers over the earth. This was God's intention for humanity, to rule the earth. In Psalm 8, David says, When I look at the heavens, the moon, and the stars which you have made, what is man that you think of him? And he says basically that creation is subservient to man. That's who we are. We are made in the image of God unlike any other creature. And in the image of God, we are also designed by God, or at least we were originally, to rule the world under the authority of God. Problem is, of course, Adam and Eve didn't. They chose, to, instead of submitting to God, to submit to Satan, and the kingdom of God came to a halt all of a sudden. It came to a big pause right there in Genesis 3. And the pause button didn't let up, up again until God made a covenant with Israel at Mount Sinai. The descendants, of course, all through Genesis, we know the story of the first 11 chapters, but then in chapter 12 of Genesis, God makes a covenant with Abraham and tells Abraham, through you, blessing is going to come to the whole world and through your descendants and in the promised land. So he gives, them several, he gives him several promises right there and then says it's going to happen through you and your descendants. And so Israel becomes the means by which blessing is going to come through the world. And Israel, not only as a, as a people, but also as a place, the promised land is going to become the place through which God's blessing is spread throughout the world. Well, at Sinai, as I mentioned, God takes the pause button off and begins to work with Israel as a nation. And the kingdom of God, God's theocratic, sometimes it's called, his, his kingdom on earth begins again of God working through Israel to be a means of blessing the earth. Trouble is, like Adam and Eve, Israel didn't do a stellar job at it. Through a series of judges, through a series of kings, there was some faithful, some not that faithful, some outright terrible rulers ruled the earth or ruled uh, the kingdom of God, sometimes under the authority of God, mostly not. And God takes them out of the land. And when he takes them out of the land, his glory also departs, and the kingdom of God button once again gets a big pause. And the time of the Gentiles begins. So God's no longer dealing with Israel as a nation. The kingdom of God is no longer in effect, but now you have the times of the Gentiles, Gentile domination of the promised land. And then Jesus shows up on the scene. And what are his first words? The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And if Israel had repented, then Jesus, the king, the son of God, would have ushered in 
that long-awaited kingdom of God on earth. But of course, Israel didn't repent, and so Jesus left, and the kingdom didn't begin. Well, that was the first coming. When the, when the world meets Jesus again, it's going to be a different story. So let's look. Hebrews 9, look down at verse 27, very end of the chapter. And look at the last couple of verses. The author writes, Inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. Notice the author here focuses on both comings of Christ and a, both purposes of Christ's coming. The first coming was a salvation in reference to sin. So Jesus came and dealt with the sin problem, redemption. But that was the means to the end. That wasn't the end. There is a second coming for a greater purpose than redemption, and that is the kingdom of God that he's going to come a second time without reference for salvation to those who eagerly await him. Now, the book of Hebrews is written to, this may sound profound, but Hebrews. It's written to Jewish Christians. And so for a Jewish Christian to read the word for those who eagerly await him is, is, uh, uh, would be a passionate stirring in their heart to think, well, that's me. I am the true Israel that's waiting for Christ. And this is who is in reference here in verse 28. Well, in your handout, you have a chart. I know you've all read the cartoon because that's what cartoons are for. But look at the chart. And this is sort of a summary of where we've been so far and a little preview of coming attractions. But a couple of weeks ago, we saw this first part here where Christ comes in the air and the rapture of the church begins. The rapture of the church occurs. And notice the arrow turns around and goes back up uh, where Christ comes in the air, receives us. That's that arrow going up, rapture of the church, and then begins the judgment seat of Christ for believers' rewards. Well, then also begins the age of the tribulation, which is what we looked at last time. And that lasts seven years. At the beginning of that seven years, as we saw last time, the Mideast Treaty is signed. The Antichrist declares himself a world ruler, and then halfway through that tribulation period, he breaks the treaty, sets himself up in the kingdom of God, or in the temple of God, as one to be worshipped, and Israel begins this three and a half years of literal hell on earth. Well, what we're looking at today is the last part of this chart. You'll notice there's more to come. There's a blank section there that I didn't fill in, but that's next week. But this part here that says Millennial Kingdom, 1,000 years, and notice it also says Battle of Armageddon there at the bottom. So rather than go through each of these little points, you'll see each of these uh, spoken of today as we, as we go through this. But hopefully this chart can sort of put in simple terms the complicated, what can be complicated in, in the study of future prophecy. So keep that, uh, keep that handy or fold that and tuck it in your Bible if you'd like to. Antichrist sets himself up as world ruler. Now you're also open to Revelation 16. So flip over to there and let's look at that together. 
I love going to Israel, especially on first-timer trips where people, and it's often the very first day because the itinerary that we typically use begins at uh, Tel Aviv or there in Caesarea and heads up north through Mount Carmel. And we go through the, what's called the Megiddo Pass, and we get to the end of that pass, and there's Megiddo. Megiddo was arguably the most strategic site in Old Testament Israel. It was sort of the boardwalk of the monopoly board. If you think of Israel as a playing board, boardwalk, the most important spot was Megiddo because it was so strategic. It controlled the pass going through the, the international highway that went through Israel. Megiddo controlled the most important, you know, section of that. You controlled Megiddo, you controlled that traffic. And so there were a lot of battles that occurred there. Well, Revelation 16 talks about one more battle, or really the, the preview of it, that's coming yet in the future. Look at, down at verse 13. Revelation 16, verse 13. John writes, And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are spirits of demons, performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world, to gather them together for the war of the great day of God, the Almighty. And then there's a little parenthesis which Christ says, Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes so that he will not walk about naked and men will not see his shame. So the context of this coming, is, the context of this gathering of the kings is the coming of Christ. Then verse 16, And they gathered them together to the place which in Hebrew is called Har-Mageddon. You may actually have Armageddon there, but this is where we get the term Armageddon. It's not a, a movie. It's not just this nebulous, you know, future time. Often when you hear of Armageddon in movies, it's, um, I don't know, there's just, it's sort of squishy. There's nothing you can really put your arms around. But Armageddon is not a, uh, a nondescript term. It's very clear what it is because here it is. Revelation 16, 16 says they gathered together at a place called Armageddon. Har, Megiddon. Har in Hebrew means hill, and Megiddon is a reference to Megiddo, the site of Megiddo. So the hill of Megiddo, we know exactly where that is in Israel, and it was the most strategic site in Old Testament Israel. And we, don't, we aren't told why that they're gathered here, except that gather in order to make war for the war of the great day of God, the Almighty. So demons somehow influence the kings of the world in the tribulation period to gather at Megiddo to somehow anticipate the coming of Christ. The place that they gather is the hill of Megiddo. And that's all we're told. You know, that it, we're not told that the battle happens in the Jezreel Valley right there. And, and a lot of times you'll hear that. If, For example, if you go to Israel and someone will say, well, the battle of Armageddon, you know, here's the valley in which it's going to happen. The Bible never says that. The Bible says the kings gather there for the, for the purpose of the battle. And when Jesus stops the battle, he's not up in Galilee at Megiddo. He's on the Mount of Olives. So the, the battle of Armageddon is really better be talked about as a war or a campaign. It's not a one-and-done battle. 
It is a, it's a campaign that happens all up and down the Holy Land in which Jesus ultimately stops it on the Mount of Olives, which we'll look at here in a minute. So they gather for this purpose. Look at the next chapter, Revelation 17, verse 14. This tells us more of why they're gathering. 17:14 says, These will wage war against the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them, because he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those who are with him are the called and chosen and faithful. The purpose, we're told here, of their gathering is to wage war against Christ. And the so-called Battle of Armageddon, as we're going to see, isn't really much of a battle. Look at a couple of more chapters further on, Revelation 19, down at verse 11. And here is the great and glorious second coming of Christ. When the world meets Jesus again, here it is, 1911. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is, is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has the name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. So, we're told that the armies are in heaven. Now, according to our prophetic timeline, who are those in the tribulation period who are with Christ in heaven? Us. Exactly. The church has been raptured. The church is in heaven. And so the church is the one referred to here as those who will be coming with Christ at his second coming. In fact, notice in verse 14, the armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean. Look back up at verse 8. Verse 8 says, It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Uh, verse 7, I didn't read, says the bride has made herself ready. The bride of Christ, that's us. So the church is the one coming with Jesus on these white horses. Christ is riding a white horse. When a Roman conqueror would return to Rome after having conquered whoever they conquered, the Roman general would ride a white horse into Rome. It was a horse of victory. And to ride a white horse was saying, I've, I've overcome, I've won. And so it's kind of funny, you think about this, the battle hasn't even started yet, and Jesus is riding the white horse, meaning it's as good as done. Not only that, we're all riding white horses. The battle is already declared who is the victor before it even takes place. Christ said in Matthew that those on earth will see this impressive scene. So imagine just for a second. As an unbeliever, you have gathered to fight Christ and his armies, anticipating his coming. You look up in the sky and you see it part, and you see Christ on a horse of victory. And then you see millions of others 
following behind him, riding horses of victory. That'd be a little intimidating, wouldn't it? It would be absolutely overwhelming. Well, unfortunately, your intimidation would not last long. Uh, the armies are also told, or the, uh, the angel shouts and invites birds of the air to come and eat your carcass. Look at verse 15 as it continues. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in heaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both, both free men and slaves and small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Pretty short battle. The sword which comes from the mouth of Christ, in other words, simply by speaking, it's done. Simply by speaking. Now, keep your place here in Revelation and turn back to the book of Zechariah, second to last book of the Old Testament, Zechariah. Look at chapter 14, the last chapter. Several years ago, before drones... Um, and by drones, I don't mean military, I mean video. Before I was able to use drones to take beautiful video of the Holy Land, you had to rent a helicopter to do it. And this was quite a bit more ordeal. You had to get military clearance, as you can imagine, and it cost a whole lot more than, um, than simply flying around a drone. Well, I had the privilege of flying over most of Israel in about two hours in a helicopter. It was like flying over a map. It was, I was just drooling the whole time and going, oh yeah, I'm supposed to be videoing. But I mean, we started, we started at uh, Tel Aviv. We went all the way up to Mount Carmel, all the way up to Tel Dan, even down as far as Masada. And then from there, we went up from the Dead Sea through the Judean wilderness toward Jerusalem. And when we came to Jerusalem, of course, coming from that direction, you don't see Jerusalem, you just see the Mount of Olives. And so you see the ridge of the Mount of Olives, and then in the helicopter coming up over the Mount of Olives, and then all of a sudden there's Jerusalem right, right over there. And I wish I'd thought about it at the time. I didn't think about it until after the fact. But the next time I am over the Mount of Olives, from that vantage point, looking down at Jerusalem, will be the second coming. And maybe, maybe... If the Lord allows me, when we're there at that time, I'll be able to say, hey, guys, I've been here. I was right here before. <laughs> it's awesome. Just wait. It's going to be a great view. But what an incredible privilege it was. But in my mind's eye, I can still go back and see, 
you know, the Mount of Olives below me and, and the city right there and just think, I'm going to see that again with a horse underneath me. Zechariah 14, we get a much more graphic picture of what happens when Jesus speaks. Zechariah 14, look at the very first verse. He says, Behold, a day is coming for the Lord, when the spoil will be taken from you, will be divided among you. For I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city will be captured and the houses plundered, the women ravished, and half of the city exiled. But the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations, as when he fights on a day of battle. In that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from the east to the west by a very large valley, so that half of the mountain will move toward the north and the other half toward the south. You will flee by the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains will reach to Azel. Yes, you will flee, just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord, my God, will come, and all the holy ones with him. There we are again. It's talking about the second coming of Jesus. Of course, in the Old Testament, the comings of Christ were merged in the sense of there was not a, a clear distinction made between the coming of Christ the first time and the second time. Because potentially, ideally, if Israel had accepted Christ, then the kingdom would have come then and there. But they didn't. And so we understand that Zechariah is referring to the second coming, and what he describes here is described also what we read in the book of Revelation. Look at verse 9. Wonderful verse. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day the Lord will be the only one, and his name the only one. Won't that be great? To have as, as the name of Christ the only one in the world who is in charge. Look far, further, verse 11. Speaking of Jerusalem, people will live in it and there will no longer be a curse for Jerusalem will dwell in security. Now this will be the plague which the Lord will strike against all the peoples who have gone to war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they stand on their feet, and their eyes will rot in their sockets, and their tongue will rot in their mouth. In other words, Jesus speaks, and they're dead before they hit the ground. It's just, it happens that fast. Turn back to Revelation 19. Uh, keep your spot there in Zechariah. Don't lose it. We'll be back. Revelation 19, look at verse 21 once again. The rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. That's what we just read there in Revelation, in uh, Zechariah. The high point of the whole book of Revelation is the second coming of Jesus, and, and that's what we just read. Now, look at that cartoon that, that I gave you. This, I've loved this cartoon for years. God-man, the superhero with omnipotent powers. This week's episode, The Threat of the Purple Beetle. Far below the teeming city streets, an evil genius toils. 
At last, my formula is ready. Essence of radioactive beetle. The nefarious scientist consumes the potion, and thus is born the purple beetle. Arr! It worked. I have the strength of a giant purple beetle. Ho, what's this? I have destructo laser sight. I wasn't even planning on that. With my powers, I can easily crush God-man. Then I will be able to rob banks unimpeded. From his hideout, from his God hideout, high atop Mount Zavulus on the planet Zik, the omnipotent God-man lifts an eyebrow and poof, the purple beetle is no more. Another narrow escape for God-man, but how will he ever defeat the menace of Porpoise Man next week? I love this because this is how the second coming is going to go. The kings of the world will be gathered together. They will have the most intelligent, incredible weapons. You can imagine what we have now. Imagine having the, the genius of the Antichrist behind it all and Satan. And they're all ready. And Jesus comes on a white horse, all of us behind him, and he simply speaks. And they're dead before they hit the ground. Their eyes rot in their sockets. So says Zechariah. God-man simply lifts an eyebrow, and it's done. I love that. You hardly have time to get your popcorn, and, and the, the major feature is over. Well, look what happens to the devil. Very next verse, very next chapter, chapter 20. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand, and he laid hold of the dragon and the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. We're told that for a literal thousand years, the devil will not be able to deceive the nations. What nations are we talking about? Because, I mean, all the nations were killed by Christ, or those, at least those that came before him for battle. Well, there were many people in the tribulation period who became Christians, or became believers, you might say, uh, not the least of which will be Israel, and many in Israel who will come to faith. And these enter just as they are, into the kingdom of God, enter into the thousand years, not resurrected, not yet uh, glorified, but just people like you and me enter into the kingdom. And then, of course, all of us who are, who are resurrected will enter into the kingdom. And so uh, we're told that Satan will not deceive these nations for a thousand years. Let's keep reading. Verse 4, then I saw thrones. And they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. So the rest of the dead, that's a reference to the unbelieving dead. Those who throughout history never believed in God and didn't believe in God 
They aren't resurrected at this time. They still stay dead. Those who are resurrected, we're told clearly, here are the martyrs in the tribulation. But what we aren't told here, but we are told in the Old Testament in a number of places, Isaiah speaks, uh, speaks about it, Ezekiel, Daniel talks about the saints of the Old Testament are also raised back to life because the kingdom of God is what they've been waiting for. The kingdom of God is really the, the kingdom that Jesus offered to Israel. And so for Jesus to come a second time now to earth, he is going to be living the fulfillment of that kingdom for Israel. And so all believers are resurrected. All believers of the ages are resurrected to live for a thousand years on the earth. And we live side by side with the believers of the tribulation who have not yet been resurrected, but like us, just go into the kingdom, which is going to cause a problem at the end of the millennium, which we'll talk about next time, because those people have children, and those children aren't saved, just like our children aren't. And so after a thousand years, there will be enough once again, once Satan is released, to deceive a whole other crowd to try to oppose Jesus. But we'll look at that next time. Uh, spoiler alert, it, it goes about the same. It's, uh, it's a pretty quick battle. Well, let's turn back to Zechariah one more time and look at chapter 12, just right before that. Zechariah 12, verse 9 says, In that day I will set about to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication. And here's the purpose. So that they will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one who mourns for an only son. And they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. In that day there will be great mourning in Jerusalem, like the mourning of Hadadrimon in the plain of Megiddo. And the land will mourn every family by itself, and then it lists all the families. Verse, uh, chapter 13, verse 1. In that day a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for impurity. This is the prophecy of what's going to happen in the tribulation just prior to the coming of Christ when Israel, their eyes are opened by God and they look on the one they have pierced, Christ, and they mourn for him as for an only son and they trust him. And so, as Paul writes in Romans 11, all Israel will be saved. They will repent. And what happens when Israel repents? What did Jesus say when he came the first time? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When Israel finally repents, the kingdom of heaven comes, and the big pause button is let up. The time of the Gentiles is done. Jesus takes care of that, and the the thousand-year reign begins with Israel finally getting the fulfillment that they long for. But you know what? We're grafted into those promises, and so we also get to enjoy the kingdom of God. And I love that because that gives us the freedom right now to live this life from a completely different perspective. And I wrote down several benefits to having a kingdom mindset. You know, the, um, 
the, uh, uh, the Beatitudes, when Jesus talks about, you know, blessed are you, bless this, bless that, blessed are you, he's speaking about what's going to happen in the kingdom. And in the Lord's Prayer, you remember he, he taught us to pray, your kingdom come on earth. Your, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's a prayer for this thousand-year reign to happen with Jesus coming on this earth, this physical earth. The Rockies will still be there. Uh, the oceans will still be there. Frisco, Texas may still be here. You never know how big it'll be by that time. But this literal earth will still be here, at least for that thousand years, and then after that, God's going to start over with a new heaven and a new earth. But several benefits give us a great shift in mindset. And here's the first one. I no longer feel the need to cram my joy into this life. You don't have to have a a, a midlife crisis at all. You don't have to have any kind of a crisis in this life because this life is not designed to be the ultimate fulfillment of all your passions, of all your longings. It's, It's the kingdom that we're looking forward to of living on this earth with Christ. You no longer have to feel the need to cram all your joy into this life. Remember in the transfiguration when Jesus appeared in his kingdom glory? And he was basically showing them, right before that time, he had told them, you've got to take up a cross and follow me. And that's what I'm going to do, Christ said. This life right now is a life in which we bear a cross. But the kingdom is coming. And that's what we're longing for. So that's the first one. The second one is life no longer looms as a fulfillment challenge, but as a faithfulness challenge. Our life, our goal is not to be fulfilled in life. And if that is your goal, it's going to be a sad disappointment. Life is not about being fulfilled. It is about being faithful. Here's the third one. My life now measures less than 10% of my whole life on earth. Think about that. If you live to be 100, you've only lived 10%, or I guess less once you add 1,000 years onto that, of the time that you're going to live here on earth. And that being the case, imagine the mindset that right now becomes a privilege. Because when you live that 1,000 years on earth, you're not going to have the flesh. You're not going to have your sinful nature. You won't be able to sin, which is a great thing, and we look forward to that. But reframe your current existence and think, this is the only time in all eternity that I'm going to have the opportunity to honor God in the face of my sin. Because all the rest of eternity, that's going to be easy. It's going to be done for you. But this life, we get to honor Christ by saying no to temptation by saying no to the, to the willful sin that wants to pull up with, within us. As we just learned in Romans 6, that we're freed from that. And we've got the power through the power of Christ to say no to that and to honor God in the face of temptation. And the fourth one, all that I'm dreaming of for a peaceful existence occurs then, not now. You've heard the phrase, you only live once. Well, actually, that's wrong. You only live twice on this earth. 
It's dying twice that you want to watch out about, and we'll talk about that one next time. I remember reading in um, Billy Graham's autobiography where he had the opportunity one time to talk with John Kennedy. It's right before Kennedy, he had just been elected, but he was not yet president. And Kennedy was driving Billy. They were both driving in Kennedy's car. And Kennedy stops the car, Billy says. He stops the car and turns over to Billy and says, do you believe in the second coming of Jesus? And Billy says, well, yes, I do. And, he, and, and JFK said, well, my church never talks about it. Tell me, tell me about it. And so Billy lays out the whole plan. Jesus came the first time for sin. He's going to come the second time to rule on the earth. And only then is there going to be peace. And he said that JFK said, that's interesting. We need to talk about that some later. And they drive on. And uh, after he, Kennedy was elected the second time, after a prayer breakfast, he and Billy got together again, except this time Billy had the flu. And JFK said, I want to I talk with you about something. Will you come back with me to the White House? And Billy said, you know, Mr. President, I've got the flu. I'm probably going to get you sick. Do you mind if we take a rain check? And um, Kennedy said, well, of course, sure, no problem. Well, of course, Kennedy was shot later. Uh, that very same year, and Billy never had the opportunity to talk with him. And Billy said that, that that lost opportunity haunted him, that he wondered what was it that he wanted to ask me that I didn't take the opportunity to make, to talk about. I love that because it was in the context of the second coming that they had that, that, that um, conversation. And so let me just say this. If for some reason you're here today and you're not a believer, Take that opportunity to accept Christ because he's given it to you now to believe in Jesus Christ. All of Psalm 2, if you want a great psalm to read about the second coming of Jesus Christ, read Psalm 2. Psalm 2 talks about what happens if those that, to those who don't trust in Jesus. But those of us who do, what a great perspective it gives us to be able to look at this and to realize we don't all have to have our fulfillment now. It's coming. And that's what we look forward to so much. Let's pray. Our Father, we began our time together by reading from Hebrews, that verse that says it's appointed for men to die once, and after that comes judgment. We pray for any who are here today that have not yet place their faith in Christ, any that might be, um, be open to trusting the one who died to pay for their sin, the one who rose again to show that their sin is paid for. And for those of us who have, Father, thank you for a reminder. Thank you for showing us the, the end of this, this present age, as it were, the end of the times of the Gentiles where Christ comes back again and the kingdom of God that has been such a longing. In fact, it was your purpose for creating mankind will be fulfilled in the man, Jesus, who rules the world just as you intended Adam to do. Rules the world under your authority and we under his. What a privilege. Lord, would you give us the grace today to continue to prolong our uh, our passions to have it all right now, and to give us a great patience to realize we haven't even lived a tenth of our time here on the planet. 
Thank you for that coming time. And until then, would you give us the passion to be faithful, to push back against our sin, knowing that this little life that we live now, this cross that we drag through life, is the only opportunity we have in all eternity to honor you in the face of our sin. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.